Hey, everybody, it is Rajiv. Now, before we start the show, I wanted to invite you to join our email list at 99pages.club. So each month, I send out two emails. No spam, I promise. One is a summary of the episodes we've released on the podcast in the past month, but the second is a what I'm reading now list. You know, I get asked for book recommendations all the time, so I will send out a monthly summary of stimulating nonfiction reads worthy of your time. I promise there'll be gems in there. That's 99pages.club to join our email list. Now, let's get to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to the 99 Pages Podcast. I'm your host, Rajiv Srinivasan. Today, we are speaking with Mr. Jimmy Sony. He's the author of three of my favorite reads. His first on the philosopher Cato, called Rome's Last Citizen. His second on Claude Shannon and the Information Age. But today, we're discussing his latest, The Founders, about PayPal and the entrepreneurs who built Silicon Valley. I believe Jimmy to be an author to watch, like a Ron Chernow or Walter Isaacson for our younger generation, and I'm thrilled he was able to join us. If you enjoy the conversation, please do rate us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Every rating helps us keep this project going. Thanks and enjoy the talk. You know, you and I go back a long ways. Tell us about your personal journey. How did you arrive at the desire to write this book? And what is the question you sought to answer? Yeah, it's it's a great question. You know, we've known each other for a long time. And so I think one of the things that, <clears throat> one of the reasons we're very good friends is we love books, right? So, so, so like you and I with a book, it's just a different experience. Like I'm sure you're the same way. Like, you know, I grew up like just being completely absorbed in my reading have have in the face of all manner of digital interruptions still maintained a love affair with books right uh it's like a weird it's like it's like i'm i'm like a i'm like a gutenberg hipster you know like <laughs> like i'm like take me to a book um so i i have worked on a couple of books the one that the the narrative history that i wrote before the founders was called a mind at play and it was about a, a famous electrical engineer and mathematician whose name was Claude Shannon. And he was the founder of a field called information theory. But the way it connects to the founders and to PayPal, which people are like, okay, how do you go from, you know, 1950s and 60s math to PayPal, right, is he worked at Bell Laboratories. And uh, your listeners um, and, and people in tech, you know, will know that Bell Labs was this, like, it was if you combined like all tech talent in the Bay Area, that's sort of what Bell Labs was like. It was the, the, the big one of the biggest companies of its time. It was had a federally backed monopoly basically on like on the phone service. So they have they funded this labs thing. It won six, seven Nobel Prizes. They invented the transistor, touchstone dialing, cellular networks and satellites. Right. Like, you know. Right. We could, and basically the reason you and I are going to have this conversation, it all emerged at Bell Labs. Claude Shannon worked there. And I started thinking, like, what are other clusters of talent? So, you know, all of these stories frequently are written as stories of individuals. Right. So you've got like Jobs, Apple, Zuckerberg, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. What what would you do if like you were looking at a cluster? My friend, John Gertner, who's an amazing author, wrote a great book on Bell Labs. So he kind of like cornered the market on that. Someone had cornered the market on Fairchild Semiconductor and on Xerox Park, And then there was an, a really exceptional documentary done on General Magic. 
So like all the tech clusters were kind of spoken for, <laughs> spoken for, right? This is like my Amazon market research. And I was like, duh, like, what am I going to do? And then I fast forwarded to PayPal. And I just, you know, because of the personalities involved, Musk, Thiel, Hoffman, Levchin, et cetera, I was like, oh, someone's done the book. I'll just buy it and it'll be really good. And I didn't find anything that sort of captured the history from 1998 to 2002 with a focus on like a mix of like tech and like kind of the, the nerding out on how do you build a product, the personalities and like some of the stories, and then also making sure you cover like the, the people who don't get attention, right? Like not the bold face names, like everybody, like from top to bottom, board members down to people who worked there for a couple of weeks. When I didn't find it, I, I basically decided I was like, let me, this is funny. You and I have been friends. So I'll be, I'll be more honest on this, on this one. I, my thesis in my head going in was, I don't know any of these people. I don't know much about tech. I'll just keep going until someone says no to me. Meaning I'll go to Peter Thiel. And as soon as he says no, I'll stop and I'll move on. And I'll do other things. I've got a child. Like I've got plenty to do in my life. I don't need this book. And then, and then it was from there. I was like, all right, let me, Peter made an introduction to Ken Howery and to Max Levchin. And so then I was like, well, when Max says no, I'll stop. <laughs> and it was basically, I mean, I'm actually being quite literal. Like I kept, I even told friends, I was like, I'm just waiting until someone like shuts this down or says no, and then I'll move on. What I found uh, was an endearing and, and in some ways surprising sense of like, these are great stories and no one's told them. And yeah, why not you, you person who wrote about Claude Shannon, maybe you're the person to do this. They thought of it as a curiosity. Like, I think if your head is always thinking about the future, you do think of someone like me who obsesses about the past as somewhat of like, uh, you're like, oh, like, isn't that cute, right? Like, isn't that, oh, like, how, how nice. But, but, I, but what happened is that if you, I came in with a lot of preparation, I would ask good questions. And I think I was forcing them to reflect on something that was two decades old. And so the conversations now had the benefit of like perspective, like they had 20 years of doing other things to, so that we could uh, kind of compare contrast or like what was PayPal like relative to slide or a firm or LinkedIn or anything else. And, and I think also like there's no, they have no skin in the game with PayPal now, right? Like these people all have moved on. It's a long answer to your question, but that's how I got to this. That was the, that was the first part of it. That's sort of part one of how do you even get to do this story? The, the second part of it is, um, I, I have found that tech books, like it, they, they tend to be a little light on like people who like, you really got to pursue them. You know, you have to like really fight to get some, like here, let me give you an example. Yeah. There's plenty of people, probably some listening who will never want to talk to somebody who emails because they just don't want the press. They just don't like, don't want the attention. They don't want any of that noise in their life. Right. I reached out to several hundred people with cold emails and with phone calls and with voicemails and with LinkedIn messages. And the real, the reason was I was really committed to the idea that there were all these amazing people who were brilliant, but who you've never heard of. And I just, I heard their names over and over again in discussions with people. And so that was part kind of two was like, okay, what if I approach this from the perspective of, all right, let's really like go for a lot of conversations and a lot of time. And I wasn't, I wasn't on anybody's deadline other than my own and my publishers, which I kept kicking back. And so that's that's how that was sort of part two of this process. Jumping ahead a little bit into some of the takeaways I have from the book. It feels like much of this founding team's identity exists in debate and political ideology. 
right? As if technology wasn't just for the wealth creation and problem solving, but this was a means to a philosophical end, right? So for example, you uncovered their method of discussion called uh, reductio ad absurdium, which seems to characterize their interactions as basically taking arguments to the absolute extreme. So what are the implications of this founding team being so ideologically driven? I mean, they're involved in student government. They have, you know, like views that they make very public about how they believe society should be run. What, what are the implications on a founding technology company with this sort of dynamic? Yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good question. And I suspect my answer might be unsatisfying in some ways, right? <laughs> because here's what I'll tell you. Politics or their ideological predispositions always gave, always played a second place role and a distant second to like the survival of the company, right? So context matters here. PayPal is formally, you know, it's formally sort of formally founded, depending on whether you're talking about Peter Thiel and Max Levchin's half of the company or Elon's half of the company, late 1998 and early 1999 just before the dot-com bust begins, right? So in early 2000 is when the markets start to collapse. And so you're, you're in a situation where you've built a company, you have product market fit sort of, and everything is collapsing around you. And so at that point, like people's politics, like didn't, I mean, they, they did not play a central role in the construction of the company. And so that, that's why I sort of described it as like an unsatisfying answer, because the truth is, that you had a lot of political heterodoxy within the team. There's always this narrative that like, oh, it was just a bunch of conservatives from the Stanford Review, which couldn't be further from the truth because most of the engineering team came from the University of Illinois. Early, Most of the early engineering team came from the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. And I, you know, it was really funny. Max Levchin's line about it when he was, when he was among his libertarian friends, he said he always felt a little bit like the dumb beetle um, because it, politics just wasn't his thing. And right. so in a way, like, so you can imagine like you might have political predispositions, but what you're actually focused on is the fact that like, your burn rate is enormous, right? $12.5 million a month and you've got $60 million in the bank. You might have a, a strong view with one party or association with one party or another party, but what you're focused on is like fraudsters are eating the company alive, right? And so in an interesting way, like, and I don't know that I would make go this far, but this is a a sort of a political time for some people who became very political later, if that makes sense. And yeah. by the way, their politics are all over the place, like, you know, they're famously like Reed's on one side, Peter's on the other. Their politics are all over the place. But this was about product development and it was about making the company successful and finding a path to profitability and then finding a path to an IPO and then finding a way to get an acquisition. Like it was less about the political ideology that becomes like it's a centerpiece of who, who they are today, some of some of them. But I would say it's actually like plays a minor role. I think when it comes to student government stuff, I mean, look, like as someone who was in student government, um, you know, you do it like it's like a sort of there's a tendency like college students want to get active in something. Some yeah. of us choose student government uh, and say, you know, say la vie. Um, I think, though, that it, it's it's really part of what I was trying to do was go back to to brass tacks decisions when people were leaving college or just had finished up a startup and were deciding to join PayPal. And very few of them like had overriding like big philosophical reasons. Honestly, a lot of the, the earliest people who joined these companies did it on a lark, right? Like it was a complete lark. Um, I, I interviewed a really a, a remarkable woman named Amy Rowe Clement, who was one of the earliest product people for Elon's half of the company. And I asked her why she joined the company. She becomes one of the, like a sterling leader 
She is one of the youngest people to become an executive at eBay when the company is acquired. Even to this day, like the people who worked around her speak about her in reverential terms. She said, she was like, I was applying to grad school. And, <laughs> and I, she's like, I was applying to grad school. And a friend of mine from our contact from my prior banking days reached out and said, hey, I just joined this company, X.com. You should come down and meet this guy, Elon. And she said, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going to grad school. And she said, no, 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 come down and meet. And they met. She was really compelled by his vision. And she chose it over going to grad school. Was she there for the small D democratization and internationalization of payments? At a, no, <laughs> there because he had a very compelling vision for changing the financial system. But she was also choosing between that and grad school. You know, it was like not a, these are not, I think these choices can later be characterized as like, oh, it was all part of a, it, it, for most people, it really wasn't. Russ Simmons and UPAN, who were two of the earliest engineers to join, they make, they basically think of their later boss, Max Levchin, as kind of a little flaky sometimes yeah. when they were in college. And they essentially make an agreement. They're like, look, he's asking us to join this company. If this thing doesn't have any legs, we're going to go, like, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll help each other out. We'll find other work because Max is not the most reliable person at this point in his life. <laughs> and and that, that, so it wasn't, you know, it's, you sort of can think that you can try to spin a narrative in which it's like all part of a plan to do something with technology. What it really is, is just people figuring out their lives. And it's like proximate steps in people's lives tend not to adhere to, especially when you're in your 20s, tend not to adhere to ideology. They're much more about like, the internet's taking off. Like, let's try this thing called Confinity. They have this product called PayPal or on the X.com side. They're like, hey, this Elon guy has sold this company Zip2. He's really successful. Maybe he has something here with this X.com thing. Like, let's go for it. That's the, the impulse is more excitement, that sort of energy. And like when one person who joined that team told me, he said, you know, at that point in your life, like you have very little to lose. Like, what, what's the downside? Like if, if Confinity flames out, I'll go find another job somewhere else. Um, there was a, a person who joined, there was actually a person who joined the company and she was an early, she had not a limited engineering background, but she joined and then got poached by Google. <laughs> so everything, everything worked out. Right. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it, you bring up an interesting and important point. I've gone on this at some length. People who do this kind of work should be careful to not let like events of the present drive the writing of the past. Right. right. Like, it's actually important. Like I did not watch Elon's performance on SNL for this reason. Right. I told friends, don't tell me about stuff that's going on in Reed Hoffman's life right now. I don't want to hear it because I don't, I need to like maintain like a, like I would wake up and read news from 1998 and 1999 and 2000. Yeah. And hard. Like you're never going to get it perfect. But the idea was what if you lived in the 1990s? Right. Like, like, although I woke up five years later and you guys have Dr. Dre at the Super Bowl. So I think everybody just caught up with that. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I th th so you made two very interesting editorial decisions. And I think you just explained the first one, which is why you made the decision not to characterize the uh, later political activity of these folks. You were trying to keep the stories focus on PayPal itself, the product, the company, and that time frame. But you made an interesting other uh, editorial decision, which is the term mafia, right? Throughout the book, you deliberately avoid the term PayPal mafia, though it is so colloquially accepted. Why the aversion to this term? What, what, are, what are the implications? Because I imagine that was a deliberate decision you made. Yeah, it was. Um, it was, it was explicit. Uh, I'll give you the, the, the constellation of reasons, but I'll, I'll highlight a couple. The first is that the term isn't created until 2007, and I'm writing about 1998 to 2002, right? 
So again, same rules. Be very careful about like taking things from the future and bringing them back into the past. Like except when they're, I mean, I have moments of comedic things that happen that I layer in, but that's just because <laughs> I'm goofy and I want to, you know, make people laugh. Um, so the, the term PayPal mafia doesn't come into being until 2007. That's problem one. Problem two, that photo is I think 13 people total. The company is several hundred people in Omaha and several and 220 in Palo Alto pre-IPO. But these 13 people were the people that were put on that that cover shoot of the, the Fortune magazine. So it excluded all of these people that like really weren't, you know, they 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 just weren't written into the history. The other thing is, and the, 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 sorry, two other final thoughts. The third point is PayPal mafia is a term that for many people I interviewed, it sounded more sinister and frankly cooler than most of the people at the heart of the story actually are. <laughs> so so it, 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 it sort of had this like air about it. The people were like that wasn't us. Like I had multiple people say to me, like, we're we were so beyond nerdy that this like does not just like we we don't we can't even earn our claim to this to this thing. But the last thing I would say is, you know, the there's this whole sequence of this history that happens after 2003 where certain people work together in the future. Uh, Jeremy Stoffelman and Russ Simmons go off and create Yelp. You know, Sarah Imbach and Reid Hoffman be, sort of early do, do LinkedIn, right? It, but, but that's everything that happens after 2003. The, the mafia label ate PayPal. In my view, the mafia label, actually what it did is it distorted the whole history, right? I had to get through all the mafia stuff to actually get to like, Wait, tell me about like 1999, not like in the investment in Facebook later from Peter or the this or the that, right? You had this, it, it was actually the whole problem with the story is that if you're launching rockets into space, like that gets <laughs> way more coverage than this payment processing company you were a part of when you were, you know, 20 something years old. And the temptation is that because these other things are so big and because these personalities are just like larger than life and they have hugely interesting things to say and they have podcasts and books and you know they they build flamethrowers and they they make whistles and things you know like because they do all that it's really hard to go back and say well i don't care about any of that I, what i care about is 1998 1999 2000 2001 and 2002 and that's so you know the mafia myth obscured the whole narrative the final the final thing here that's it's actually really important is that um I treated the, the term on its own terms, meaning I have my view. I think it should be called the diaspora. Like it's, I, and other people have said that as well. There was an article in 2006 that was written in Forbes where a writer, I think her name is Rachel Rosmarin, called it the PayPal diaspora. Um, SV Master, who's the woman who comes up with the name PayPal, believes it should be called the PayPal diaspora. David Sachs has said that he thinks it should be called the PayPal diaspora. I'm a fan of that term. The there's just like it, it was so encrusted, but it was also sinister and it excluded all the women, amazing women who are part of this story. Like there's only men in that photo. Like I just I thought of it as like, OK, I'm going to write about it, but I'm not going to reinforce that myth because a it's disconnected from my story historically. But also just like it has these lasting and really bad lingering connotations that don't reflect like the stories for a lot of people who actually built the company. And I heard that what I heard over and over again was there was some resentment about that label 
And there was this sense that like, they were just like, they, that is not, like, we're not that cool, right? <laughs> like, that's, oh, yeah. the, the, the overriding sense was like, we're not, we're not that, like, to make it seem, a board member, the earliest, one of the earliest board members of the company, John Malloy says, calling us a mafia is an insult to mafias. The mafia is far more <laughs> organized than we were, right? And, and, I, and if, we're, if we're on this point for a little bit, it's actually really important because I do think like labels like this tend to distort history, right? And they do a real disservice to, you know, pick your person, but like they do a real disservice to Sanjay Bhargava, who invents a key technology that is at the heart of the company's success. They do a disservice to all these people. And I just, like, it wasn't my, my thing was not like, let's go cover the mafia, which is from 2003 to 2022. My thing was, no, no, tell me about PayPal. <laughs> like, like, right. Like you're, so, this is, it's cool that you're now doing this thing, but tell me about the first thing. Exactly. So let's dive into the, the, maybe some high level takeaways, like, you know, what is it about this team? You spent many hours over about five years with Teal, Musk, Levchin, Hoffman, et cetera. So when you look high level at this team, what differentiated these PayPal founders from the other big, the other founding teams of other big tech companies, Amazon, Facebook, Google? What, what do you think differentiates this core group? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's, the, it's the sort of big question, right? And, and the, the, the point of the book, I hope, or at least like one of the key takeaways, the things that, that are emerging for me is that there is not one key ingredient. Like actually, like, again, like to provide us hopefully a, an unsatisfying answer on its surface, but then I'll dive onto the surface, right? Is like everyone is looking for a silver bullet, but there's not one, right? There's not, it's not like one thing. It's not like they all read the same book and we didn't know about that book. And now, <laughs> the book, you know, it's not like, like there's no secret right. handshake, right? Yeah. Um, and, and part of that is like companies are constellations of people. They're different people. People are very different. They're different characterologically and from personality perspective. There are a few hallmarks, like, I, and I'll talk about those. I'll talk about the things that I saw having interviewed so many of these people, both well-known and not well-known, that were very similar across all of the folks. Um, one is like a very, very high bar for intelligence, but I would actually say um, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of uh, like a curiosity with a really practical application. Like they were reading and, and learning from like a disparate set of sources, but it was always with the idea of like, how are we gonna apply this? Like, what are we gonna do with this, right? So it was this like active learning. Let me, and, I'll, and just to bring it down from that sort of level, um, in my discussions with the people at the heart of this story, there would be references to the Bible. There would be references to films. Like I do a whole riff in the book about Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. There were references to like great literary works, right? Like, um, like I remember I listened to an interview with Max Levchin. He talks about what was one of his favorite novels is like Master and Margarita, right? It's like a great Russian novel, right? And 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 then you'd learn that like Peter Thiel like read Ulysses like cover to cover, which like anybody who does that should get a gold star, right? Like, and and then you'd sort of hear like, and I I just kept coming across it when I asked uh, Elon about his ousting, which is in the middle of the story, and why he didn't attack the company after he was ousted. Like, why didn't he go back and like snipe at them in the press and stuff? He references the story of King Solomon from the Bible. Right. And so what I found was 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 two things. One was this like very wide, a much wider range of sources and references and things that populated the things they were talking to me about than I ever expected. Right. I didn't expect that. Right. Like you sort of ex you sort of think like, OK, maybe there's this like, no, they they were very widely read. The other is that the curiosity had a kind of like um, a kind of uh, a, a hard headedness to it, a practicality to it. There was, it was like learning for the sake of like, this will be useful or like learning for the sake of like, I really just want to learn, like I'm going to get better. Right. 
there, there was that part of it. So I would say that's true across the board. Everyone I interviewed was phenomenally intellectually curious, which can seem like a small thing, except that, you know, I'm not like intellectually curious every day. <laughs> not, not in this way, not in the way that they are. And I think it was normal for them. And I think some of these people are, you know, outer level IQ points. But the one thing I'll say is, other employees who joined the company mentioned to me that because books were being passed around and because you had people who were so, so smart, people really leveled up. They had, they felt like they had an obligation to like read and learn and do all these things, right? Some of this is, some of this is like that came with that. Some of it is the place actually encouraged that. The second important ingredient that I found that I was surprised me was a love of like puzzles and logic games and math problems, chess, poker, this kind of thing. And, and I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush there, right? But the, the anecdote that really spoke to me was I found four years of the company's newsletters where every week they would sort of give like updates on the company. It's the best thing for someone in my line of work because I could look, look back and not depend on what people's memories are 20 years later. I could look back at paper, right? Paper doesn't lie. Like it's there. What I found was every week they'd put a puzzle in the, the weekly newsletters in what's called the weekly pal. And they put a puzzle in and then, and then what was really, what was really cool was the next week, the people who got the right answers got shout outs like, Hey, congratulations to Rebecca duh, duh, for getting this right answer. Right. And, and so there was this, this sense of like, and I saw it over and over again, like where there was just a real love for that sort of problem solving, not across, not for everyone, but particularly among the engineers, there was this sense of like, this is what we do for fun. Like, like this is like, we do math homework as a way to enjoy ourselves, right? Like that's that's a part of the culture of the place. And I, I found it, again, I found it endearing. And my dad's an engineer. It's probably part of the reason he plays a lot of bridge, right? Played a lot of bridge growing up. I played chess growing up with him. And and I do, I could sort of see that in his experience of life as well, where like, you if you have, you know, he's a biochemical engineer and I could see that like the same problem solving instinct that he had at work was the sort of thing he wanted to do on his off hours too. Right. Yeah. Um, the the thing that funny enough, as I was doing the fact checking and the follow up with Max Levchin, the place where he insisted, insisted that I like really make sure I have my eyes dotted and T's crossed were the three puzzles that I put in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm like writing about his life. And it's like, no, 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 you got you got this puzzle wrong. Like uh, no, no, you, that, I, I thought I heard that. Wrong. You, you need to fix that. Um so there was that. I, I would say the third, the third thing that I noticed that was a hallmark of, of all the folks I interviewed. Um, and I haven't actually like come across the right phrase or word to describe it. it. It there was a kind of like respectful aggressiveness, right? Or like kind of a, a sense that the thing to do when you're engaging with someone and you care about the thing that you're engaging on, which in this case was PayPal, was to have really like like just be direct, to be honest, to push each other's thinking. And, and the place I saw this most powerfully was in my interviews where they would call me out and like push me and like, and really like force me to sort of step it up. There was nothing, if I got a word wrong or if I said something that was imprecise, they would call me out on it. My first, um, my first uh, like interview with Roloff Botha, he like asked me a brain teaser. It was like the first thing he did. And I just had to be like, look, I'm not going to get this right. Like there's no, and, and, and so there was, there was that he, we, 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 he, there's a big um, section of a tree in the Sequoia office. And he like had me like, he was like, oh, he asked me like estimate the age or something. I mean, it was like, really like that sort of stuff. I found that there was this, call it a competitiveness, uh, a willingness to push, a willingness to like kind of, cajole, right? Provoke. 
that was a part of my, my the process of even doing this book, but also it was very key. I, I, I got the sense that this was the way the place was like, which is like, it was not like, it was frequently an uncomfortable place to work because you had colleagues. Jeremy Sullivan has said this in other settings. He said, you know, they were totally okay with Jeremy, a very junior engineer, calling executives out on email threads, right? And just like, wow. like flaming them. And, and, and again, there's like real downsides to that kind of culture as well. Um, what I found though, is that there was an embrace of anyone's ideas, as long as you could kind of articulate what the idea was, fight for the idea, make a reasonable case, they were willing to hear you out. I will give you an example. There's an engineer named Bob McGrew, who later becomes director of engineering at Palantir, but he uh, is an intern at PayPal and then kind of graduates to a full-time role. Bob, uh, like uh, on like one of his early projects, he comes up with a better way to deal with the master password for PayPal. So passwords are really like, Information security is hugely important to the company, right? Because they're dealing in people's money. And he said, he said to me with some delight, even years later, he said, so I come up with this way, this like intricate system to, to, to improve the passwords. And I didn't really know like what I was doing. And I brought it to Max with some trepidation. And he looked at it and he was like, yeah, that is better. We should do that. Let's do that. Let's go. Right. And so there was this, this, and, and Bob was not a full-time employee, was not an executive, you know, was not anyone of, of at that level. And, and yet there was this kind of like, all right, that's great. Great. Perfect. Let's move forward. Right. Like that's fantastic. And yeah. I, I, I found this again and again, I, I recognize that it doesn't work perfectly all the time. I also, by the way, read a lot of notes across this company that like, it was really, it was an intense place to work. It was not the easiest place to work. It was a grind. Parents in particular really struggled. Right. Cause it was just yeah. like intensity all the time. Um, but it, to a person, people would say, it also brought out my best work. You have a picture in the book of a gentleman taking a nap with a box over his head, like uh, just in the corner, splayed out. It's clearly this guy's just been and, run down and overworked. And, and by the way, it's like a good thing the culture's moved on from this sort of like <laughs> insanity, right? Meaning, meaning like it's a good thing that like someone like like people have decided like this might not be the most productive or the mo the best way to work etc yeah. but but it was also you can't if you're trying to tell the story of what happened you can't ignore that right so i, I remember i was in an email discussion with amy real clement and i asked her for her, her recollections of ipo day and she, she writes back and and it was like one line and it's in the book i'll misquote it here but paraphrasing she was basically like i just kept thinking to myself like, wait, it's, we're not going to work on a Friday night. That's incredible. <laughs> like, like, we don't have to work. Like, that's amazing. What a thing. Right. And she said, she's like, it shows you where my mindset was at the time. We just gotten so accustomed to doing this. Um, but that, that was the sort of place it was like, you also, again, context is king here. Yeah. Middle of the dot-com bust. You're, you're, this company is fighting for survival. So let's talk about some of this culture here. Cause one of the themes in the book and, and it's, 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 told in a relatively isolated sort of chapter, but it's it's clearly a problem that persisted with the company, which was fraud, right? This company was getting defrauded left and right, and it seemed uh, 
really a result of this like relentless growth strategy. We, you know, we were going to let these critical problems persist to an extent because it's about getting more users. They had the the world domination index, if you will, (laughs) that they called it. So I'm curious of your lessons learned here because we hear this in startup culture all the time, basically grow, 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 growth at all costs. And I'm just curious, is this actually a virtue? Or a liability, and how does an entrepreneur or an investor tell the difference? How do we know if this is actually a healthy or unhealthy way to grow a business, treat employees, etc.? Yeah. Um, so a, a super important disclaimer, right? Which is like sort of like what you like what people attach to like Reddit threads when they're giving medical advice so they don't get sued or whatever, or financial <laughs> advice so they don't get sued. Which is like, I you know, I am the wrong person to weigh in on on the the on that meaning i wrote about what happened i'm not the person to necessarily weigh on whether in 2022 in the world we live in which is you know much more mobile technology etc like for that you would have to look to other people like including like you know reed hoffman like meaning with blitzscaling and other things meaning like I, the, the context for the book is from uh, growth from 1998 to 2002. And there's a particular approach to growth then that may not be true now, right? I, I just, I, I don't do what you do. I'm not that talented. And so I don't know if this is the right way to do a tech company today, but I can tell you their thinking and approach to growth from back then. And some of the lessons I think are, are relevant and interesting, right? So an important disclaimer, which is like, you may try this at home, but maybe yeah. like, <laughs> like maybe, maybe not. I don't know if it, if it works for you. Um, Fraud is a side effect of building, of, of achieving rapid product market fit in late 1999 and early 2000. The, the companies at the time, they were two separate companies, Confinity and X.com, eventually merged to become PayPal. And they have built a very permissive payment system with the goal of getting to a critical mass of users because and I had multiple people walk me through this, but basically once you reach a critical mass of users, network effects take hold. So the value of someone joining that network goes up. And I did a whole riff on Metcalf's law and stuff. It's all in the book, right? Um, but the they wanted to get to that critical mass of users. The challenge was that in building a, a permissive, relatively permissive payment system where you're trying to keep the gates down so that people will join. You also at the beginning just have people like defrauding you out of your bonus money, meaning they'll, they'll, I had a, a really a wonderful interaction with someone who talked to me about the, the creation of accounts under the name Mick E mouse, like Mick middle initial E last name mouse. Right. Uh, someone described how their checkbooks, he, this person said, he's like, you wouldn't believe how many checkbooks, checkbooks we printed where the first name was ASDF and the last name was HJKL. Right. So, you have that. You have just a bunch of people join who are sort of like, sort of like low-level chicanery and like deceit and stuff, right? But as the the actual practical application of PayPal technology happens on eBay, you get more sophisticated fraudsters. So you have international fraudsters. You have international hackers. You have people trying to trying to break through, but you also have just people using PayPal as a way to do bad things. And now you're the intermediary. You're the person that. You're like, if you are selling something on eBay and I'm buying something on eBay and PayPal's in the middle, now you're a financial intermediary. The rules of the game change. So all of a sudden the company has to start interacting with the Federal Trade Commission, the Secret Service, et cetera. They also, there's no literature or body of law on fighting financial fraud. 
one of my absolute favorite interviews during this whole crazy process was a fraud fighter and analyst named Melanie Cervantes. Melanie, I believe the job she had before coming to PayPal was she was doing fraud fighting at the Home Shopping Network or and she was doing like credit card processing fraud. She, 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 as she's processing credit card fraud, she starts to see PayPal again and again on like fraud reports. So she says, even now she's like, describes, I don't know where I got, you know, the, the, the courage to do this, but I called them and said, Hey, it seems like you have a problem with fraud. You might want some help. <laughs> right. And that sort of leads her to join the company. What part of what she explained to me was she said, I would call district attorneys or like us attorneys and I would say, oh, this person's doing this like digital fraud or like, they have some specific description of what it was. And they, they would, they would, there would be a sort of silence. And then they would say, well, what's, what's that? Like, tell me what that is. Right. Meaning like in late 1998 and early 2000, just as the internet is coming into its own, the bad things that happen on the internet are only then coming into their own. Right. So there's no like established body of case law on like, what do you do if like X, Y or Z happens? Right. And these things are very complicated and they involve the law, but there's no like long standing litigation that we have now to deal with this. So that's part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is the fraud is just overwhelming. I mean, they're burning millions every month. My, one of my favorite lines is, you know, from Reid Hoffman in the book. And he says, if we were standing on the top of a building burning wads of money, we would be spending money less fast than we are at the company. Right. Uh, just, and, it, and, and like, it was crazy. Like the combination of customer service fraud and a tanking stock market, plus a growing team, plus merging two companies and nobody's seasoned, like no one knows what they're doing. This is like not an easy thing. If I emphasize the context, it's because all of these decisions are actually, it's important to remember the context. Here's another piece of the context, dial up internet, right? Like you and I are on like high speed connections. I mean, this is like the future, right? Um, that at that during that era, it's all dial up internet connections. It's, things are very slow. Things are very slow to build, to fix. All of that to focus on the fraud for that for for more of it. But the fraud is the company. The thing that tanked the company. It's also fighting fraud that makes the company hugely successful, right? So I can't cast a moral judgment on the question of like, is growth at all costs good or bad? I, I, I'm not in a position, nor would I feel qualified to answer that question. Like I just am not, especially because 2022 is different than 1999. Here's what I can tell you. The team was inventive and resourceful in responding to the bad actors on their platform. And that inventiveness and that resourcefulness is one of the cornerstone achievements of this company. Right. That that actually like. Let's 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 tell let's tell the story. Yeah. It, it, you know, it reminds me of a book, uh, Anti-Fragile by Nassim yeah. Taleb. Right. They took something that could have been uh, a, a brutal attack on their business and they almost turned it into a strength. They used and it I'll, as. Please. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. So here's an example. Almost everybody listening has had the experience of you want to register your bank account with a website. And what the website will do is they will send your bank account like two tiny little deposits, like one cent and three cents, right? And that drops into Rajiv's account and Rajiv now has a code, 0103. Those, the 0103, one cent and three cents. That code, that idea is called random deposit. Random deposit was invented at PayPal to fight fraud. And the reason is because how do you authenticate a bank account? It's actually really not easy to do in that era. You could use checking account numbers and routing numbers, but any voided check has those. And you could be very easily taken advantage of if you were not careful. 
Sanjay Bhargava is this incredible, extraordinary thinker, and he had a, a background in finance. He comes up with this idea where you have this four-digit code, and and no less a, an you know an innovator than Elon says that was a fundamental. He used the word he used the word fundamental, and he emphasized it when he said it. He said, looked at me and said, "That was fundamental." Then, just because I was like, "Okay, let's see just how fundamental it is," I went back and I looked at the launch announcement for the product, and David Sachs had this wonderful line. He said. It's an idea that, like Velcro, you wish you had thought of, right? Um, but but if you think about like the challenge of people misbehaving with bank account registration, is what forced the creation of random deposit. And now random deposit is ubiquitous. We all use it in different ways, big and small, right? I I, I don't. I'm not trying to make the story seem too pat because there's some really bad things that happened during this period where like there's real financial crime, like the Secret Service gets involved after 9-11. Uh, you know, one, one fraud fighter put it to me, they were like, the government, and I'll just say the government came to us and needed our help, like looking into terrorist financing, right? And seeing if money was moving, that you know, all that. So it's not, I'm not trying to minimize the seriousness of what I'm trying to suggest is this could have killed the company. It is one of the company's sterling and unheralded successes. I, I think that is an absolutely fantastic lesson to take away. Uh, is is the way to turn that uh, potential death knell into your your greatest asset? I mean, what an incredible story! Um, PayPal ends with the acquisition uh, by eBay. And my my, is, my book ends with the acquisition. PayPal doesn't end. PayPal is still. Forgive you know, me. Forgive me. Oh, yeah. oh uh, forgive me. Let me restate. <laughs> Thank you for that correction. The book ends with PayPal's acquisition. Uh, to eBay. And this is a story that a lot of people, I don't think have really heard this level of nuance and detail on the emotions, the, uh, it is a, it's a very tense series of chapters to say the least and meticulously researched by the way, why eBay? I mean, this at least culturally feels like oil and water. Can you tell us a little bit about this marriage and what you made of it in that time? PayPal has this unexpected success, right? Which is their products become the solution to payment services on someone else's platform. A situation that was described by multiple people as, imagine that, it, that you ran the cash registers in someone else's store. <laughs> it would create some tension for you because those cash registers are inside their store, right? eBay had had in its earliest iterations, incarnations, and and into into its um, past its IPO, had wanted to develop the world's best place to do online auctions. But it also had a kind of um, it didn't want to over like determine what its users were going to do. So it didn't offer shipping and handling. It didn't offer photographs. It didn't offer like payment services. So buyers and sellers on eBay were actually figuring out their own payment systems, right? I, I had this wonderful, there's a wonderful line. I didn't include it in the book, um, but it's fun to riff on this with you because I can like tell you stuff that I didn't include in the book. Um, someone said, you know, when you'd use eBay, it felt like 1999 and 2000, but then you'd get to the payment system and it felt like the 1950s because you're like sending checks and cash and money orders and Western Union and doing and figuring it all out yourself. Into that that situation steps x.com's payment product developed by you know that company and confinity's paypal product um the confinity's paypal product where both of those are elegant email-based solutions to this payment problem 
the next several years are a fight to make sure that eBay doesn't turn them off, gum up the works, right? Like monkey with the business because so much of the payment market share flowing through PayPal exists because of eBay. In the, I went back and I looked at all the things that were written about PayPal just before its IPO. And IPO is supposed to be like, you know, like you're going public, it's so celebratory, et cetera. The tone of these articles is all like, well, their entire volume is like on this other website called eBay. Like they could turn them off, I guess, right? It's not like it's like glittering debut. It's like a very tense, difficult situation. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm finding humor in it now. It was not funny then to them, right? Like I'm yeah. laughing because uh, we're 20 years removed and why not? And I know you, right? But it was, it, it was a very hard situation because imagine like the vast majority of, of your customers are on this other platform and you, do, you can't control what eBay is going to do. So there were a series of like, really, you know, a dance between these two companies. At the end of it, I, I interviewed a lot of people about the acquisition because the acquisition, as you said, it's this emotion, interesting emotional moment. They've gone public and then they're acquired, you know, they go public in February of 2002 and the acquisition is formally announced in July of 2002. And then is, it is like commenced or concluded or whatever in October when like they, they, you know, but between that February and that July, part of what the, company executives at PayPal realize is look like we're never we're we're never going to be safe if we're always like fighting eBay uh, there was a, a, a person who who I interviewed who said um, I think it was Vivian Go who had actually interned at eBay funny enough before she joined uh, before she joined PayPal Vivian said you know we were past the stage of producing and creating and we were just fighting like it just felt like a rear guard action right? And, and that's not the exact quote, I'm paraphrasing, but it's in the book because I thought it was such an interesting thing where she said, we stopped sort of like adding value. We were just like fighting for what we already had, right? And and so there was that sense. There's also a sense of like, look, if if any rules change at eBay or if Visa or MasterCard change something or if like, it was a really, even though they're a public company, it was a precarious situation to be in. And there's also, once you've gone public, there's a mark for the price for a private company, right? Meaning it's actually hard to price private companies at the, in that era. They have a price. You can pay a premium. It's an easier situation. They'd had a bunch of negotiations with eBay. They didn't go well, right? Um, you have a mark for the company. But but really, I argue in the book, and I, and I think many would agree, that it was a risk mitigation strategy. The acquisition was a way to make sure that like, okay, like we've, we've got, okay, we're good. Like eBay is not going to go anywhere. And for eBay, you know, it like solves this problem of like, we've got this, like these people running our cash registers on the side and they're really good and they're aggressive. But like, come on, we should, this is a part of our business too. Jeff Jordan, who's one of the eBay executives who helps to champion the acquisition, also said that he and others identified that PayPal was going to grow beyond eBay. It was going to be bigger than eBay. It was a platform, right? It was going to actually have a home in other sites. That was one motivation on the eBay side. And then also the company had just about hit, I think by that point, they had announced their first profitable quarter. So they're no longer like bleeding money to fraud and everything. They had actually figured out how to make the revenue model work, right? And so it, 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 in some ways, like it makes sense that the acquisition would happen. Um, just given the realities of both businesses, I I think if I were, if I can extend like my own like authorial like I did all the interviews license, it was a big sigh of relief. You know, like you spend four plus years, in some cases, you know, four plus for some of them, but between let's say zero and four years, like battling every day. You wake up every day and you think today's the day eBay is going to turn us off, right? Today's the day we have to like make waves about antitrust, right? So that we can stay alive. Today's the day that they decide that they're going to do. 
that's a lot of anxiety to live with. And the acquisition dissipated some of that. It wasn't universally embraced. People have their, even today, people have like, would get, would get all like, um, I remember interviewing a couple people who were very excited and said like, oh, we shouldn't have sold. We would have been so much bigger if we hadn't sold. I think some of that is a little bit of revisionist history. I mean, I don't know enough to know whether it is or not, but most of the people who are at the heart of that process basically said they were like, look, this made sense. Like we were, we were fighting more than building. And at some point fighting becomes fruitless. One thing I love about your book, Jimmy, is, you know, when I see the photo of the PayPal mafia, I see more or less a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of old white men, right? Yet, one thing I love about your book is you champion minority, women, uh, senior, junior members of the team. You actually show this to be a relatively diverse team, far more so than I think uh, pop culture credits it with. And you, in that, you bring a lot of people up. And at the very end of your book, your epilogue, you actually mention two characters who I think are very interesting, Stephen and Chris, um, that I believe deserve a mention. These are two prison inmates who read about the PayPal mafia at the time and develop their own entrepreneurial master plan, a book by Chris Wilson that many of you may have heard of. So this, to me, was a surprising end to the book. What are you trying to tell the reader by summoning Chris Wilson's story in your epilogue? So take a step back, right? I've written this story about these sort of Silicon Valley things. And what I started to notice was that around the world, um, the moniker of the PayPal mafia kept popping up. In Kenya, uh, when the company Copo Copo goes public, these people talk about, they're like, we want to build the PayPal mafia of East Africa. Um, <laughs> In, in Europe, it's Monzo and Revolut. In Canada, it's Workbrain. In India, it's Flipkart. In each case, like the Flipkart mafia, the Workbrain mafia, et cetera, right? And it kept coming up. But it always kept coming up in like tech things. And so at first, it's actually funny. I can, I can admit this now. The book's done and it's out. Um, I was going to do a whole thing around like how American tech ecosystems and culture have sort of like dotted the landscape of the world. And I was going to use the, this as like, I was going to go to Kenya and like, I was going to do a whole, I had a whole plan in my head, right? It was like, that's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go to India and I'm going to interview the alumni of, of, you know, um, a flip card. I'm going to go to Canada. And like, so I, I read a lot of that literature. I found every article I could about that. And then I stumbled, not stumbled. Uh, I, I, you know, you sort of like, you have stumble. You also are looking for these things. Chris Wilson was, uh, he had become a friend. Um, he was living in Baltimore. My a mutual friend had said, hey, Chris wants to do a book. You do books, why don't you talk? And Chris and I just got to know each other and I just found his story totally remarkable. Chris was incarcerated for murder one at the age of 16. He was given a life sentence. This was at a time when like the crack epidemic is tearing through communities in Washington and Baltimore. And in almost every possible way, the deck is stacked against him, especially even before he gets a life sentence, the deck is stacked against him. He sees horrific things. He's given a life sentence at, at the age of 16. He gets into prison and there he meets uh, another inmate named Stephen Edwards. And actually, it was really funny the way that well, one of their earliest interactions is that Stephen was like, like Chris goes up to Stephen. Stephen's writing something on paper, like he's scribbling and he's got some like books and things near him. And Chris looks down at what he's writing and he, he can't, it's not like, the, it's not English. It's like symbols and stuff. And he goes, he goes, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm computer programming. And Chris laughs at him and goes, like, dude, there's no, 
we're not, we're not, what are you doing? And he's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to program. And then I'm going to get out of prison and I'm going to become a software entrepreneur. And Chris like looks at me, he's like, you know, you're like me, you have a life sentence. Like, what, what are you talking about? Right. Steven was someone who also had a life sentence and had been in prison, but had this, he had a, he had a really, he had a loving and, and supportive family. He also had a conviction about the fact that he would earn his freedom. He started taking classes. He had done, he had earned degrees. Both of them basically become these like intensely focused people around their education, around their work, around improving the lives of their fellow inmates, around the faint hope that they might get out someday. One of the things that somewhat incongruously appears in their prison cell is a photo of the PayPal mafia. And they tape laminate it, meaning laminate it, but it really is just clear tape. They take clear tape and they put it over and they put it up on their wall and they become obsessed with the these like tech founders. And these are two men in prison, young men in prison. Like, and I, I at first I was like, no guys, like there's no way. Like, I just don't believe that. Like it, it's, you know, and, but then if chapter and verse, they knew every detail about Max and every detail about Elon and every detail about Reed. And they read about them constantly. And when a book or a news article would come, they'd clip it. They assembled a packet called, uh, and then they, they taught that, packet as a class called in prison called what you can learn from the PayPal mafia. And so my mind is blown at this point, right? It gets even more incredible. Both of them end up earning their freedom. They today, Stephen Edwards is a software entrepreneur. Uh, and Chris Wilson is an artist and a hugely successful one at that. He is an author two days ago. I haven't shared this anywhere. Actually, this is like two days ago, I said on social media, but not any talking about it. Two days ago, Chris and I went to the Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland. And the first book event we did for the founders was with 20 or so inmates at the prison. Um, and we it was the first time he had been back since his book had come out. He actually hadn't been back. And obviously, well, I hadn't done anything. My book was just debuting. And a few weeks ago, I just called Chris and I said, you know, it'd be really cool is if we went and we took some of what's in here and some of what's in your book and shared it with an audience that will never get this kind of opportunity. There's plenty of other places we could do this, but why not there? And he, he went for it. He's like, he's like, that's let's do it. And then he starts his like email chains and things. This story of Chris and Steven is also a story about why entrepreneurship for them was fundamentally different from finding a job after they leave prison. Once you exit prison, prison go, stays with you and you have a record and you always have to explain what you've done wrong. You've also have to explain Something you did at 16, right, when two guys came up to Chris in an alley and he felt threatened and didn't know what to do and pulled out a gun and killed one of them and wounded the other. And he has a huge amount of remorse for this. You know, he's done everything you could possibly do to, like, make amends, apologize, etc. And he, he and Stephen had a sense that entrepreneurship and business building was the only place in society where there was no ceiling on their success. There was, if they added value, they would get value. And they, and by the way, these aren't my words. These are their words. I quote them heavily. As you probably saw, I quoted them more than I wrote anything at the, at the yeah. very end. It's because I wanted people to hear from them. Stephen has this great riff. He says, you know, if you're a drug dealer, you can make, he goes, at risk to your like life and health and everything else, you're going to make a million dollars. He goes, but let me show you the example of these other people who have made billions of dollars without any of that, without guns, without law enforcement and all the rest. This was very uh, real in their lives. It wasn't like a photo of an NBA player where there was like no hope that they could ever do it. Steven has a patent, 
right? He filed a patent application. He got it a couple of years ago during the course of doing this book. Actually, he, he got his, his patent, the numbers in the back of the book. This was real for them. They could make it real. Chris has done real estate businesses and now he has his art business and he does other things that are that are in this way. They, it, to me, embodied some lessons from this story or some ideals from it that can extend way beyond like what we think of as quote unquote tech. I thought of this as a story of understanding groups and networks and like, how can you help each other? How can you build businesses? What does it mean to build a business? I was really moved by it. I was also skeptical of it and did my homework, but then everything I would kick the tires on, it was unbelievable what they had done. That was our talk with Jimmy Sony, author of The Founders on PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. If you enjoyed that conversation, please do consider rating us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a few clicks from you means a whole lot to us. Thanks, and we'll see you soon.